Hi, this is Chris Stewart from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Please reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email at oasisathens at gmail.com. If there's anything that you need, if you have any questions, we want to continue to serve and minister to the needs of our community. May God bless you today, and we hope you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Well, we are in 1 John. It's where we're going to be this morning. So we're going to be probably for the next four or five weeks, wherever we are uh, physically. This is where we're going to be spiritually. This is where we're going to be in our study intellectually. And, um, we're actually going to study the entire chapter. And if you weren't here, or, or you weren't here, but if you weren't with us last week online, don't worry, you haven't really missed um, anything out of 1 John. We, we did conclude with reading the first four verses in this uh, chapter, but what I did mostly last week was um, just sort of touch base on, on you know, why 1 John was written and who the author is. Uh, and uh, if you want to listen to that, you can just go back through. We have a podcast feed. If you go into your podcast app and you look up Oasis Church Athens, you'll find it. Or you can just simply, if you want to watch the whole thing or, or skip to the message or whatever, you can do it on Facebook Live or Facebook videos. Our, all of our videos are in our, our Facebook feed, Oasis Church Athens Facebook feed. But, but we talked about how the theme for our study in 1 John is, is going to be love one another. And I believe it's appropriate because when you read the entire book of 1 John, you see the love of God communicated in the life of John to us, the, the, the author, the writer. And I think we can assume that John was a person who was passionate about doing whatever it took to reach people for Christ, a person who really loved the Lord, a person who was, was as we mentioned last week, God's best, Jesus's best friend when, when he was here. Uh, and I think we can assume that because his life demonstrated it, and all the way to the end of his life, we see that faithfulness as well. We talked about one point last week, you know, John at one point in his life was persecuted for his faith. He was boiled alive um, at another point in his life. He was sent into exile to live on the island of Patmos, um, he saw the other disciples. He saw his brother James martyred. Um, James was the first of the 12 disciples that was martyred. He saw all the disciples martyred, basically killed for their faith. And he was the only disciple that was not martyred. Uh, and he lived to be about 100 years old. And toward the end of his life, that, that 100-year life, he wrote the, these words that we're uh, reading today. And, and he, he spoke words of encouragement to the church. He continued to encourage the body of Christ to pursue after God with their lives. And one of the things that I want to clarify this morning, because even though our theme is love one another, because I think that is a major theme in the, in the book of 1 John, one of the things we're going to see as well is that another major theme throughout John's letters is that he is communicating, or it's something his letters sort of all encompass, I think, is he's recognizing some falsehood, some, some ways of thinking in Christianity, and he wants to communicate some warnings against false teachings that can really easily drift into the church and be embraced as, as truth um, by the body of Christ. And so 1 John is a really powerful book in understanding not just, not as, not, you know, only how much God loves us and wants to live through us, you know, lo love others through us, but we also must be able to do that 
in truth. And so there's this balance between loving people but living in truth. And and I think, you know, as John, when John's writing this book, a lot of scholars believe, most scholars believe that he's actually, he's alluding to a, a pretty common false teaching that entered into the second century church pretty heavily called Gnosticism. And, and one of the things I love about how John handles himself and how he handles this, this writing is he never actually identifies the false teaching. He never speaks about the false teaching like by name or whatever it is. He's not saying this, this is what it is, this is what I'm talking about. Instead, what he does is he recognizes what the false teaching is saying, and rather than just talk negative about the false teaching, he talks about what it means for us to be in Jesus and what, what God desires for us as we live in faith to Christ. And I think that's really important for us. I think it's important for the church in general because you're always going to encounter things that are, that are false when it comes to learning more about Christianity, really in, in all of life, in anything, really, in, in everything, in everywhere you go. I mean, I think that means, I think every commercial is built on falsehood or false teaching. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we were in the first or the Ten Commandments and we talked about the commandment of coveting. Advertisement is a form of false teaching, really, because what does advertisement do? It appeals to the lust of our flesh, to the pride areas of life, for us to do something that maybe we wouldn't have done normally, right? That it tries to get that, that sensual side of you to say, hey, I deserve this, and, and, and you go buy it. That's just life. That's what, I mean, it's all around us, and that kind of thing is all around us. But here's what we need to be, and what John is saying, you know, he wants us to be as a church, knowing, knowing not necessarily everything. We don't need to know everything we're against, but we need to know what we're for. You know, and so John doesn't necessarily talk about all the things that that the church is against, because you can be all you can be against a lot of things and still never actually live for what you're for, what you're created for. So as Christians, he's saying we need to be far more interested in where we're going rather than where we've been. God cares about where you're going. God cares about you. And John recognizes that some of the teachings that that are that are around the church right now in that time in his time in the first century, he recognizes some of the things that they're being taught, and he's like, oh, "That's not. It's not. That's not really it. I mean, that's not. That's you know." And I want to I want to lay a foundation for you here. He's saying, and so he wants to address those things. And I really think it was a form of early Gnosticism that that later really crept in hard, and actually it still exists today. We just don't call it Gnosticism, but I think you'll recognize it as we talk a little bit about it. Um, but even in that context, he still doesn't identify the false teaching. He doesn't identify it by name. But he identifies that Jesus should be the light in all of us that lives, around, you know, lives through us. And John starts to communicate to the church that you know, where, we are, where we belong, you know, who, who our faith is in, how we are to live. And, and I think it's, it's, it's good to talk about this because somewhere along the way in our worldly culture, we began believing this really strange idea that in order to be compassionate toward people, you have to let go of your convictions and the things that you believe in. In order to love people, you have to change your convictions about what is right and, and what is wrong or else it's impossible to love those people. It's impossible to love other people unless you... It's a really bizarre thing. I mean, it's a, if you think about how bizarre it is, this concept that everyone has to believe the same things and agree on everything exactly the same, or else love can't, 
can't be possible or compassion can't be possible. It's absolutely ludicrous, but it's, it's, what, it's what you're being forced with every single day. We're being force-fed that every single day in the culture of our world. You don't have to compromise your conviction to still be compassionate. You don't have to agree with someone else's beliefs their lifestyle in order to be, in order to love them in order to, to really truly love them Jesus is a perfect example of this he did that masterfully he loved people right where they were at he he met them right where they were he cared about them unconditionally and he cared about them enough to stand for truth in them and he was able to balance this issue of loving them wholly and still speaking truth to them and the reason why he did that is because truth is what ultimately transforms life. Truth transforms your life. It's not that you use truth to belittle people. And that's, what, that's, that's probably the, the, the difficult thing that I see in our world today. I see a lot of Christians using truth to belittle other people instead of love people, to bash people instead of serving people. And that's, that's not the way Jesus used truth. I think John is showing us here, yeah, love one another is the theme, but we love them in truth. And there's this great, incredible balance that we need to find with truth and love. Now, I want to go back to the, to the Gnostics for a second, the, the Gnosticism belief and what it's about. Because we need to understand a little bit about it before we jump into this text today. Um, we're going to read the entire chapter of 1 John. We're going we're gonna to get to it eventually. But I want to give you a backdrop of this issue, the teachings of Gnosticism, which are really peppered throughout the way John addresses, addresses this entire book. Gnosticism at the time of John was a really early movement. It hadn't gained its momentum, but it was starting to creep its way into church. The word Gnostic um, comes from the, the, the word knowledge. And so Gnosticism is this belief in knowledge as the highest, like the highest thing that, that you could attain. And now, of course, Christianity also believes in knowledge. It's not like, you know, God created you with a mind. He wants you to use that mind, right? But what Gnosticism would teach is that, is that they had secret knowledge, it's sort of like a better version of whatever you believe, right? Um, you, know, what, you know, whatever you believe, is, that's, 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 we have something a little higher. It's secret. So, so come to us, and we'll help you with this. And that's sort of what Gnosticism leaned toward. And, and one of the, the tenets of Gnosticism was this idea that the physical world was evil, but the spiritual world was good. And that led to some different forms of Gnosticism, but basically, in a real general way, they believed that the physical world was evil, but the spiritual world was good. And so what happens is this, you have to account for Jesus, because Gnosticism was a form of Christian, like Christian teaching. It came out of Christianity. It crept its way in. It's, it's, it's a worldly way of being. Like they would call themselves Christians. But then what about Jesus? Because Jesus was fully man and yet fully God. So when Gnosticism encountered Jesus, they had to come up with an idea to sort of fit their way of thinking about God and about, about, about Christianity. And so how did they deal with that? Because the, if, if the physical is bad and the spiritual is good, well, Jesus was a physical person. And so what they started to teach was Jesus didn't really come in physical form. You see, that was what was happening, is that this teaching was starting to creep into the church. As early as the first century, the very century in which Christ was, was Jesus Christ was walking the earth, they began, to, they began hearing these these teachings and these rumbles that, well, Jesus wasn't really here in physical form. 
we think it's something that just we come up with in the 20th century, but it, you know, in, in the 21st century. Is Daisy curious about something here? <laughs> Are you lost? Hang on one second, folks. Do you want to help with the sermon? Yeah, no, don't do that. <laughs> okay. All right. Are you, you want to go see Ben? Okay. There you go. <laughs> we have all these wires and things on the floor, and she's tiptoeing around very carefully and trying to find her way through. There we go. Uh, so anyway, what the Gnostics basically said about Jesus was that he didn't come in physical form. That he, Jesus is real. Jesus, you know, God came to earth, but it was all spiritual. So like they would say when Jesus walked the earth, he didn't leave footprints, things like that, because he was more of a spiritual awareness in front of you. And even today that you will find people who say they are Christian, but they'll say that God is, is, is an awareness of the spirit, right? He's, he's, that's, that's who God is. He's not a real, he's not a person, he doesn't exist, and you can't have a relationship with him because that's just what he is. And that's sort of a form of Gnosticism still that exists today. And so John recognizes this, and he begins to teach the church right at the very beginning of his letter of the significance of Jesus coming for us in physical body and what that represents. And in and, and, and all of this, he desires for, for, you know, for you and me, as we are reading this now, uh, is basically, you know, he, he desires for all of us what he says in, in uh, verse 4, which is what we concluded with last week, where John says the reason why he's writing these things. He says, I write these things. So if we, if we ask ourselves, okay, John, why did you write your letter? Basically, he answers it right at the beginning. He says, I am writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So he's planting the idea that, that of, you, know, you can have joy, this idea of joy for us is actually found in the identity of Jesus Christ because the joy of what life really is finds itself in the original, in the origin, the originator of all things, the origin of the creator of all things, and that is Jesus. And so in emphasizing this and knowing that Gnosticism is dealing more with the, the spiritual, looking at the physical as evil, John recognizes this teaching as an affront to Jesus because he walked with Jesus. He knew Jesus. And so when you read the beginning of John's letter, he says, that which was from the beginning, this is verse one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So he's putting Jesus in a very tangible form, right? I mean, it wasn't just a spiritual arrival. He physically came to earth. He looked at me in my fishing boat and said, come and follow me. That was really a person, a man that did that. Verse two, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and we have heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship. You too, you today now may have fellowship with us, those of us who saw and heard and touched Jesus. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. You see within these first three verses that John is, is immediately identifying that God came in a very tangible way. And then he goes back and he continues to refer to these, 
these senses of hearing and touching and seeing Jesus basically reminding us all the way throughout his letter, Jesus was here. Jesus was physically here. And I know that we might look at that and we might think, what's the big deal, right? I mean, what's the, what's the big deal? So, I mean, what's the big deal of him coming physically or coming spiritually, right? Either way, he came, right? Why is this a big deal? It is a big deal. And here's why. It has everything to do with the sufficiency of the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. If you think in terms of the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Jews would go into the temple and they would make sacrifices, right? They would bring bulls and goats and lambs. And these, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, it tells us that bulls and goats and lambs really can't suffice with the sacrifice that is needed for the sins of your life. So what did they represent then? Well, they were symbols. They were, in the Old Testament, the idea of worship was all symbolic and, and it was foreshadowing the Old Testament was foreshadowing, pointing, it was intended to point us ahead to the significance of the Lamb of God, Jesus. And so it says in Hebrews 10 verse 4 that they continue to make these sacrifices and the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, these sacrifices can never be enough. They can never suffice what is needed for your sins. So what will suffice? What will be sufficient? An equal exchange. It has to be an e a pure life for a sinful life. A sinful physical life needs a pure physical life. One who is tangible coming for those who are tangible. You see, spiritual, spiritual can't die for tangible. Blood and bulls, figuratively, can't die for human beings. You know, can't die for human beings. Bulls and goats, they don't match, but they don't match. But Jesus needed to physically come as a man for you. That exchange is what makes him sufficient for your life. That is the whole basis and the foundation for the teaching of Christianity. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, if you want to go out to eat this afternoon, rather than, you know, you, rather than you come to the counter and rather than paying with regular cash, you give them Monopoly money, right? I mean, that's, I don't think that's going to work at Chipotle. They, they need cash. And it's the same thing for Jesus. John is emphasizing the physicality of the arrival of Jesus Christ and the significance of what that means for our lives so that we can root ourselves in the historical reliability of the work of Jesus Christ. And that is the root of Christianity. I mean, remember, in this time period, when John is writing, he is the last of the living disciples, right? And so the eyewitnesses of Jesus are beginning to die off. They're passing away. And so John might be one of the only eyewitnesses left that walked with Christ on the earth. I mean, there were others, right? He wants us to understand this idea that Jesus, you know, J Jesus, when he came, it wasn't just a spiritual idea because he's, he's concerned that this, this teaching is creeping its way into the church. And you need to understand that's not the truth. That's not really what Christianity is based on. You know, this isn't just a made-up thing, John is saying, that, you know, that, you know Jesus was for real. I, he's like, I walked with him. I, I spoke with him. I listened to him. I touched him. We were eyewitnesses. You know, so John may now, you know, he's a man who might not be, a, he might be like 100 years old, and he's continuing to give his, his life for the work of Christ. And he's not writing this book because he wants something from people. He doesn't want anything from you, but he wants something for you. And he wants you to know the reliability of Christ's work was in, you know, the significance of Christ's work was in the reliability 
of him coming physically for your life. You know, I mean, this is, I, I mentioned, this is something that we, I still see in people today. I mean, we see this today. I think, I think it's just, maybe it's probably the, a symptom of the same thing that Gnosticism, you know, means and stands for, knowledge. We have so much knowledge in our world today because of our interconnectedness. And, and really, I mean, I think, and I think if there's one thing that we really fall short in today as human beings is that we really think we know everything. And we really think we can figure everything out, right? I mean, I'll put it in, in the form of a question. What happens when you don't, when you realize you don't have it figured out? I mean, for example, have you ever believed in something and you really believed in it and then you eventually realized that eh, it wasn't what you thought it was? I might not be right here, right? I might have been fooled. I might have been an error. What happens when you, when that, when, when you start to see a crack in your belief about something? Well, you start, we start to put up these little defenses, right? Like, like um, we, 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 get, we, we go sort of go into panic mode. We don't want to get duped again, right? You know, like, like the fool me once, shame on, on you, but fool me twice, shame on me. So we kind of, we go into panic mode and we sort of, what do we do? We examine everything in life, right? Like, so if it comes to looking at the claims of Christianity, like, you know, like what we're talking about today, you just, you, you want to, <laughs> Did he just bump the camera? <laughs> we got dogs dogs going wild here this morning, bumping cameras and everything else. Um, so what happens? I mean, you're going to have this happen in, in your life with Christ and Christianity. And so what happens is you want to look under every rock and under every crevice to make sure that what you believe is accurate, right? And you're not going to trust in anything again until you know that something is true. I know people like that. I've been that way at times in my life, and maybe you have too. So let me just say this. When it comes to faith, because I know what, what's going to happen is people are going to say, well, that's what faith is for, and I agree, but I want to talk about faith for a second. When it comes to faith in anything... To know everything there is to know about something is an impossibility. When we talk about the idea of faith, we, you know, some people assume that faith, I think, is like blind ignorance, right? So people of faith are just, they, they, well, that, I mean, that actually, I've heard people say that people of faith are ignorant people, like that we're non-thinkers, right? That having faith is sort of a blind ignorance, and they assume that everyone who says that they have faith is just like, well, I don't know. It's what faith is for, right? Let's just have faith, right? As though there's no desire for knowledge or academics or science or anything like that. And and the reality, I mean, look, if you ever come across anybody that responds that way, like, you know, you know if, 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 if their answer is just, ah, if you ask them a question about what they believe, and they're like, I don't know, that's what faith is for, right? We'll figure it all out in the end. Don't listen to that. That's not, that's not what Christianity is intended to be. When it comes to faith, God gave you a mind, and God wants you to use the mind in conjunction with faith. For some reason, we think logically about everything else in this world, but when it comes to faith, we treat it like, no, oh, we're just supposed to guess at it. I, I, I suppose. I mean, let's just hope we're all right in the end. That's what faith is. Let's just, ha just have faith, right? Let's just have faith. Like, like there's nothing really to stand on there. And I don't think God intends for faith to be that way. And I, don't also, I also don't think that God intends for you, on the other side of this, to know everything there is to know before you start your journey with Him. That's impossible. No one ever begins in, in a life with Christ like that. The more, the more you grow, 
the more you learn, the more you understand Scripture, the more hungry you become to want to know more, and you gain this appetite that just can't fully be satisfied in wanting to know God. The more you know Him, the more you know about Him, the more you want to know Him, and that's just the way it works. And so when it comes to faith, you don't come already knowing everything about Him, but it's also not this blind ignorance. You just, but you got to start somewhere, right? And so where do you start in this journey? And that's what John, you know, John, John is basically saying, I want to give you the place to start. That's what he's saying. I want, I want to make sure. I think John here in 1 John is saying, this is the foundation of what Christianity is built on. And you need to make sure that you put roots in this as he begins his letter. And it's in the historical reliability of Jesus. Paul summarizes it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised from the grave, then our faith is in vain. I mean, everything that Christianity roots itself in is in the identity of who Jesus is, what Jesus said, what he did for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. And if that isn't true, then don't follow Christianity. It's foolish. But if it's true, it has the power to transform your life. And so John is saying, you can rely on these truths. You don't have to know everything. When you start this faith journey, John wants us to understand that it's, it's, it's rooted in the life of who Jesus is. And if you can find that foundation, if you can, you can rest on that foundation, then when you begin your journey, your walk with God, you will grow in your understanding of all that God is in your life. Jesus coming into this world in physical form is that foundation and really, really living, really dying, really raising again. And the beauty for us is that it doesn't end there. You know, after the early disciples, you know, like John being one of the last of the disciples and one of the last eyewitnesses to be around to tell these, these truths, the first century eyewitnesses of Christ were dying. And so what, what, what did the early, the, the, the early followers of Jesus, the early church, the early Christians, what did they depend on? Well, early on, they depended on those eyewitness accounts, right? And so they would, they would relay the eyewitness accounts to, other, to the next generation and then the next generation. And like Paul even said in 1 Corinthians 15, he said in verse 3 and, and, and on and beyond, he said that Jesus appeared to his disciples, he appeared to Paul, he appeared to 500 people at one time, and he's talking about how Jesus physically appeared after his resurrection. And Paul is saying that, the reason he's saying that is because he wants the, the individuals he's writing to the Christians at that time who didn't see Jesus, he's saying, hey, go ask the eyewitnesses. Go ask them about Jesus's life because they're still walking the earth today. They're still around. They can tell you for themselves. It's like Jesus didn't hide. You know, he, he appeared to hundreds of people at a time. Jesus, after his resurrection, that's what he did. And he spoke and taught for 40 more days. Uh, you know, and people saw this. So go talk to those eyewitnesses. But what was happening is, in John's, in John's later years, is those eyewitnesses were starting to die. So now how do we defend this faith? What do we do to defend this faith at this point? And what they begin to recognize is that, you know what? This faith that we have is rock solid 
Because of the eyewitness accounts, yes, but when we when we compare it to the Old Testament as well, the Old Testament scriptures, as we look back into the scriptures, then you can see the manuscripts, what they, what they said about the coming of Christ, what they said about the coming of the Messiah, that the Messiah would come. And they begin to compare those things, and they begin to say, you know what? This is absolutely rock solid. I mean, every little thing gives an account you know, the specific time when, when he would be born, when, when Jesus would be born, the Messiah, uh, you know, when he would be born, how he would die, what would happen, events that would surround that. And so those individuals began to put this together and they're and and like, you know what, we don't necessarily need the eyewitnesses of Christ. We have all of this and this, this is reliable. This is reliable. There was one individual, I'll just give you one example in church history. His name was Origen. So history writes of this of some of the different Christians and the different things that took place in the first century church. And there was a guy named Origen, and, and some people even argue whether or not Origen was even a, a, a real Christian because he had some, some whacked out views. Um, but when he started to see the validity of what Christianity stood on, he started to write about it. And he, he wrote history as well. And he wrote about his, you know, about the, the truth of Jesus. And he was known in church history as one of the great apologists for Christianity. And he had sort of a crazy life. I mean, when he was like 17 years old, his dad was taken away and martyred because of his faith in Jesus. And history writes that his mom, um, when his father was taken away, his mom saw that her son Origen was panicking. And so she went and hid all of his clothes so that if he tried to run out and save his father, um, which she knew that he would do, uh, he would and he would be killed too. Um, so she's like, he, if he did that, he'd have to go out naked. And I don't know what Origin was wearing at the time when that happens, but but it's 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 weird, you know, if he was wearing anything at all. But she hid his clothes so he wouldn't run away. But then he goes on and he starts to write these things about Christianity. And he was such a devoted person that, and I and I and I even hesitate to say that he used the word devoted for this because. I wouldn't advocate for any of this at all, but basically his life was so dedicated to Jesus, he believed that he should ref he refused to own a bed, so he slept on the floor, and he never wore shoes, and he castrated himself, which I don't know why. There's no biblical reason to do that. I mean, there, uh, but Origen was like, I guess he was so dedicated to the Lord that he saw sexual temptation as something inside of him that he didn't want to be involved in, and so he went to the extreme in this area of his life. But he writes a defense of Christianity, a defense of the faith. And there was even a point in church history where there was a plague that hit the Roman world. And the emperor at the time, his name was Decius, looked at Christianity as the reason for all the plagues, the reason, the reason bad things would happen to Rome. Because in Roman days, they worshiped many different gods, multiple gods, and if anything bad happened, it meant one of the gods were angry at them, most likely. Well, the Christians only worshiped one god, and so they were the ones that made all the other gods angry, is basically the way that the emperor looked at it. And so the Christians would get all the persecution when bad things happened because all the other, you know, one of the other gods was mad at them because they weren't being worshipped. That's the way the Romans looked at it. And so Decius gets this idea and he said, you know what? Here's the idea. Origen has been so influential in the Christian world. Origen has, he speaks out, he defends the Christian faith that rather than persecute all the Christians, because that takes a lot of time and money and effort, let's just get Origen to recant. Let's torture him until he recants his faith in Christ. And that'll cause all the other Christians to recant as well. And so for three years, every single day, they tortured Origen to the point to where he would almost die, and then they would stop. And they thought that they could just get this great defender of the faith 
to recant his faith in Jesus, then Christians everywhere would would deny as they just forget the teachings as well, and it would just go away. But Origen stood on the validity of who Christ was, and he ended up being released three years later after three years of torture, not because of um, of grace. <laughs> Uh, or not because he endured it all the way to the end, but basically because Emperor Decius died. And, uh, and then shortly after that, um, he actually succumbed to the, to the uh, effects of his torture, and he ended up dying for his faith as well. But he's referred to, it's interestingly enough, Origen is referred to in history as like the original Superman. He's given the, the actual title, the Man of Steel, um, because of the things he went through for his faith. And I say all of this basically to say to you this. Christianity is more than just wishful guessing. It has a solid foundation. And when you start that journey with the Lord, you don't have to know everything. But as, as we've said, that's impossible. And that's what the journey is about. It's about learning to know God more and just continuing to walk with Him. But the foundation starts with the identity of who Jesus is, His death, His burial, his resurrection. And if that foundation is solid, then everything else will come into alignment. You see, Christianity has that as its foundation. In fact, when Luke wrote his gospel, Luke began his gospel in this way. So the gospel of Luke begins like this. He says, it seems good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Theophilus was, was a gentleman that paid for Luke, who was a doctor, to travel around and gain you know, you know, research, information about Jesus and the gospel of Christ, and write it all down. And so Luke says this at the very beginning. He says that you, Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So Theophilus, Theophilus has heard these things about Jesus, and he's wondering, you know, well, I need, I, I need, to, I need this confirmed historically, right? And so Luke confirms it. He is like, look, these things are indeed true, you know. And, and so Theophilus sends Luke out. He gives him the funding, you know. So he wants to Luke to guarantee what he's heard about Jesus Christ, and Luke tells him, yes, it's true. There's a solid foundation. When it comes to putting your faith in Jesus, you really don't... I mean, you know, we talk a lot about faith. You don't need a huge faith. I mean, really, you only need a little bit of faith. That's, but, but that little bit of faith, it ought to rest on a solid, firm foundation. You know, we talk like faith. I mean, you know, really, I mean, think about this. We talk about faith like it's, it's the primary thing in your life. Like, you need to have a lot of faith, right? But really, truthfully, it's not as much about the size of your faith as it is about the size of your God. Think about that. It's not as much about the size of your faith. It's about the size of your God. Jesus confirms this. In Luke 17, Jesus said it this way. He said, says the, and the Lord said that if you had faith, like a grain of mustard seed. You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and plant yourself into the sea and it would obey you. So Jesus is saying, what point's he making here? He's making a point about faith. 
and what your faith is based on. I mean, have you ever seen a mustard seed or any seed? They're tiny little things. And he's saying it's that much faith is all you need. That's, if, that, if that's about the size of your faith, that's going to be enough because you have a great God. As long as that, that much faith is in a huge God, you're going to be okay. But if you believe in anything else, you better have a lot of faith. One way to illustrate it, <clears throat> you may have heard this illustration before or this analogy before. If you were to travel across a massive lake covered in ice, would you rather, so it's a little would you rather game, okay? Would you rather travel across a lake with two inches of ice, so two inches of ice, and all the faith in the world, or would you rather travel across that lake in two feet of ice with just a little tiny bit of faith? So two inches of ice with all the faith in the world or two feet of ice with just a little bit of faith. I can tell you right now what I'm choosing. I'm traveling across that lake on two feet of ice. And here's why. Here's why. Because if you travel across that lake on two inches of ice and you've got all the faith in the world, as soon as you hear a crack in that ice, what happens to your faith? It starts to crack also, right? But when you make that journey across that lake of ice, and it's got two feet of ice on it, and it feels like a firm foundation, and you take steps one step after another, and you can feel the dependability of what that is, even though you just have a little bit of faith. You got enough faith to walk across, but it's just a little bit of faith. What happens as you continue to walk? Your faith begins to expand, does it not? It explodes because that foundation is trustworthy. You see, when it comes to the idea of who Jesus is, John is saying, look, you don't have to play guessing games here. He wants it to be really clear in our minds. He wants it to be clear in the minds of the church throughout the rest of the generations of the church. This is the foundation of who you are. As this church grows and it goes out from here to next generation, the next generation, all the way to us, this is the same foundation. This foundation is secure and you're able to rest in the foundation of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. What happens to your faith when you're able to rest in a solid foundation? It soars. And the reason why it soars is because it's not about the size of your faith, but it's about the size of the God that you trust in. How secure is your foundation? Let me ask all of you right now, what are you trusting in and how secure is that foundation? Because I can tell you how secure mine is. When you think about what John is saying in this text, when you think about the way, the way he begins, the way he begins this book, he's talking about the identity and the physicality of Jesus and how important that, that, that is because it has to do with the sufficiency of the sacrifice that he made for you. His exchanging his physical life for yours so that you could be set free in him all the way to death, to his death on the cross. And that matters. That matters so much. And then he concludes in verse 4 by saying, look, we write all of these things so that our joy together could be made complete. In, and, 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 you know, what, what does that mean, Right? that we write these things about, that we give you this foundation so that our joy can be made complete. There's something about the security. Look, there's a direct correlation here between the security of knowing something for sure and having joy, being able to rejoice. I Look, I'm seeing it today. 
You know the people I see with the most joy today in a world where we've had 20-some weeks of, of, of isolation, 20-some weeks of battling this thing called coronavirus? You know the people I see with the greatest joy are the people that have a firm foundation. There is something about the security of knowing something for sure that helps you to rejoice during moments that are really difficult to rejoice in. I mean, like, think about anything in your life. When you're lacking something, when you lack purpose, when you lack love, when you lack hope, when you lack security, there's, there's too much panic in your life during those times to be able to find joy and peace. We're trying to find it, right? And it's hard to find it. But when your identity, when who you are is secure on a firm foundation, then when you have ultimate purpose, when you have never-ending love, when you have eternal hope and security and all of that wrapped up in Jesus, then there is joy. And that's what John is saying. When you know this, your joy can be made complete. When you read at the end of 1 John, all the way to the end of this book, in John chapter 1 John 5, verse 13, he says it again, I am writing these things to you so that, John says it again, so that, and this time he says, so that you may know that you have eternal life. I don't think his word in chapter 1, verse 4, and his word in chapter 5, verse 13, are exclusive from one another. I think they are, they are, very, they are very much mesh together. The security of who you are in your eternal life in Jesus is the very basis for which you have joy. Because no matter what happens in your life, the security of knowing that everything is going to be okay rests in the foundation of your faith in Jesus. And John says that there is really good physical evidential reason for this faith, and that is a means for joy. So it's important, even with faith, to recognize that God exists in physical, bodily form because it is the work that he does in that physical form, in that physical life, that provides the basis and the foundation of our faith. And it's the reason why we're able to carry on faith because it doesn't take a lot because we have a good, secure foundation. For all of time, people have been arguing about these issues of faith and the existence of God and, and just blindly believing in this God does, and does he exist and all that and, the, and, and, and is he really good or not good. And one of the most awesome points that John makes is that the best way that you can see God is in Jesus. You want to see and know God? We saw him. It's in, he's in Jesus. Paul says the same thing in Colossians 2.9. What does he say in Colossians 2.9? He says, in him, in Jesus, the fullness of God dwelled in bodily form. So you want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. Because when we're left to our own human terms to describe God for the way he is, we are always in danger. We always have the propensity to diminish his glory when we try to describe God. It's, one, it's, it's the reason why, and I just kind of want to, I want to wrap this up and we're going to read, go through the, the last of these verses here, but I, I, want to, I want us to think about this for a second. There's a reason why in the Old Testament, when God gave his name to Israel, he said his name was Yahweh, right? Yahweh, or however you said it. The Jews refused to use that name. They, they refused to, to utter or try to even say that name. And the reason why is because they, they saw it as so sacred and, and holy. They saw it as, as otherly, right? 
They didn't even want to speak the name of God because they knew that to begin to speak the name of God, to even say his name, was to try to describe God in words. Like they needed a name for him. God's like, I don't need... And so he tells them a name for him. And they were like, well, if as soon as we start using his name, it starts to diminish his glory because he's so otherly. He's, he's holy. He is other than us. I, do we really understand what that means? I mean, because we go in... we. We, without even thinking about it today, we, we diminish his glory. We're always at risk of diminishing his glory by the way we talk about him. But I want to try to describe God for a minute in terms that, that we need to think about. Even though I just told you that anytime we try to do this, we're at risk <laughs> at undermining his goodness of who he is. But when you think of in terms of who God is and how he is diminished in his glory by trying to describe him, let me give you a fairly ridiculous question that we often ask. And there's, there's an, you know, the innocence of this question is okay. All right. I mean, there, I don't think the innocence of it, I mean, because we all ask this, we've all asked it probably before, but there's an innocence to this. And I don't think that diminishes God's glory. But when we, when we get, we begin to understand the backdrop of it, then we'll see how that, that sort of plays itself out. So a common question that sometimes gets, that gets asked is this, and we probably all asked it, where does God come from? right? Innocent question, right? So it's, it's an important question to think about. We've all thought about it. You probably had philosophy classes where you've had this question come up, or maybe a question like, you know, if God can do anything, can he make a rock so big he can't pick it up? Those kinds of, those, those kinds of things that makes your mind stretch, right? But where does God come from and like who made him, right? It's an important question because all we're doing when we think about that question is we're just being observational with the world around us, right? We live in this world, and like everything that exists, everything that's been created, everything has an origin. And so we just think naturally, okay, what's the origin of God, right? We're so familiar with everything that exists that we assume, you know, within the parameters of everything that exists, we assume the same questions about God. That's, that's, the, that's really a, a huge thing in arguments about God. Who made him? Where did he come from? But here's the problem with that question. When you think in terms of that question, it confines God to creation. Because we're assuming when we ask the question, oh, where did God come from or who made God, that he is like everything else, because everything else has an origin. Therefore, because we can conceive of everything in this world and the way we conceive of everything in this world through the lens of our experience or what we see and hear and what we know, then, then, then God must be relatable in the same way. That we, we assume that we have to be able to relate to God in the same way. But when you think about everything that exists in this world, there are really three things that are needed in order for existence, right? In our world, there are three things that are needed. That you need time, you need space, and you need matter. You need a time for which things to exist. You need a space for which things to come from. And you need matter that makes up the substance of that which exists. And so anything and everything that exists in our world has those three things, right? So when you think in terms of time, matter, and space, what's interesting about you know, time, matter, and space is that you can't have two without three. It's like there is no existence without all, you need all three right? Like if you just had space and matter, but there's no time for anything to, become in, to come into existence, 
then there's not really any existence. So if you had time and space, but no matter, then there's no substance for anything to be formed. And so there's no existence of whatever it is that it is that you're talking about. So if you had time and matter, but no space, then there's no place for anything to exist. So when it comes to everything that's been created, at some point you have to have an origin of all three things, right? There has to, ha there, there has to be an uncaused cause for which things come into existence. For example, let's give some thought to atheism for a second, right? I, I, uh, you know, I, I actually don't uh, shy away from atheism at all. I, I read and listen. I, I listen to quite a bit of Sam Harris, uh, what he believes, and 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 uh, he's a brilliant guy, very intelligent guy. But at some point, all of his arguments end in the same place. And, and, and really, when you think about atheism, the substance that, that first begins all things in terms of, of matter, you know, that's everything, everything like begins in the world of atheism and what you believe with, with, with matter, right? Everything begins with matter. And then if, but if you ask the question, well, what about time and space? Because in order for something to, to exist, there has to be time and space. Well, let's not talk about time and space, right? But we think let's begin with in terms of matter. Well, the problem is you can't have one without the other two. You can't have two without the other one. The other, you know, the question that you always have to come back and answer is 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 the question: How can something come from nothing? Everyone has to answer that question. I don't care what you believe in. Everyone has to answer: How can something come from nothing? And so, when it comes to the idea of God, He himself is the uncaused cause, which means he's not defined within time and space and matter like everything else that's created, but rather he's defined outside of time and space and matter because he's responsible for all things that are created. You have to have that. So, before God, there was no time, space, or matter. And, and so there's no time for which he becomes, could come into existence. There's no space for which he could, would exist in or be confined to. And there's no matter for which he is created, you know, the substance of God of who he is. There's, there's no, there is none of, God is outside of all those things. And so when we ask the question, well, where did God come from? It becomes impossible to answer in the context of time, space, and matter, which is the way we think about everything. Because with those things that cause things to exist, God is outside of those things. Time, space, and matter cause time, space, and matter to exist. God exists outside of all those things. I mean, it, 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 and so we can't, you, we, what I'm saying is, our minds only think in those terms and we try to define God in those terms and you can't define God in those terms because he's outside of those things. It's like asking the question, how tall is the color blue? Or how much do your thoughts weigh, right? You can't define blue like that. That's not, that's not a way. And you can't weigh your thoughts. God can't be defined within the substance of creation in order for creation to exist. The very fact that we exist is proof of God. You have to have an uncaused cause outside of creation. 
So even the question itself, who is God? Where did God come from? Who made God? It's impossible to answer. And to even try to define it, to try to define him like we've been trying to do for the last 10 minutes, it diminishes who his glory is. So John says in his letter in verse 5, God is light, chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is why in Exodus 3, when God gave the definition of who he was to Moses before Moses went to Pharaoh, and Moses said to God, as he's talking to this, to this flame, this light of the burning bush, he says, okay, God, I'm going to go to Pharaoh and I'm going to say that you declare to let my people go. Who should I tell Pharaoh sent me? <laughs> right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not just going to say I, this on my behalf. Who should I tell him sent me? And in the midst of that light of the flame, God declares his name. And what does he say? Two words. I am. Tell him I am sent you. So you want a definition for God? An answer to the question, who is God? You know, pages and pages and pages could be written to try to answer that question. But the way God defines himself, the uncaused cause is like this. I never came into being. I simply am. I am. And that state of being means that all things that are then created find their purpose for existence in the one who is not created. The one who is not defined in time and space and matter. And what that means for you, what that means for me, is that, and it means for everything that is created, we find our purpose in the existence of something outside of ourselves. We find our purpose of existence ourselves outside of ourselves. Our purpose is found within him. And he's the only one that finds his purpose. He is the only one who finds his purpose for being and existing within himself because he defines all things. That's why he says, glorify me. That's, that, the, I mean, he, that's what it means to be God. That's what it means. So wrestle, it, it, wrestle with that thought for the rest of the day, okay? Um, it's a mind-boggling thought, I know. I mean, why would I take so much time to tell you that? Well, in Genesis chapter one, it's the way God defines himself. In, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and God said, let there be light. And there was light. So knowledge Holiness, the authority of God declared from the beginning. Just as John says in verse 5, you know, God is light. I mean, Gnosticism may see the physical world as evil, but God in physical form, Jesus, he is pure, he is holy. He, you know, this idea of God transcends beyond our imagination. We can't conceive of the true glory of God, of someone outside of time and space and matter. But then Jesus comes, John says. And Jesus explains God. You want to know who God is? We saw him in Jesus. We heard him in Jesus. In him, the fullness of God dwells. And so what happens now is John shows him how much, how, relate, how we can connect with him through relationship. Verses seven, all the way to the end of this chapter becomes so important because while in verses five and six, you see this transcending God of light who's beyond our imagination. Now all of a sudden, verse seven starts the idea of the imminence of God and God coming and we can have fellowship with him. Verse six, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. 
This walking in darkness is denying of the truth of who Jesus is. But verse 7, if we walk in light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so you see the, that's the, the sufficiency of who Jesus is and coming in physical form. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But then verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. So in the midst of seeing this God that transcends all things, this God that cannot be defined in the same way that we try to define everything else, he comes in a very personal way for us into the world that he created. And he gives his life to cleanse us. And in these very verses that we've read here this morning, John talks about that fellowship that we can have with, with God, that God in his transcendence desires to be very real to you, to have personal relationship with you. And so this sufficiency of who Jesus is for your life becomes you know, the paramount understanding for walking daily with this God of creation. And so he, you know, he, he closes there with verse 9 saying that uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I think that word all is really powerful there. Because it's, it's everything, right? It's, it's everything. And, it's, and, it's, and it shows us the, how this God that exists outside of our, our world of knowledge comes so close to us on a daily basis. And when you mess up, he's there to forgive you. And the reason he can do that is because he came in the way that he came in a physical form to be that sacrifice for you and me. And John says, this is the foundation that we place our entire faith in. That's the foundation of our faith. And so, I just want you to, to ponder that today. That Christianity is about this journey of faith. It's built on a firm foundation. You don't have to know everything when you begin. But, but you can know this, that there's, there's, there's two feet of ice there and not just a couple inches of ice. I think there are a lot of things that people put, put their faith in out there that just, it's like walking on a couple inches of thin ice. Boy, there's a lot of faith. And John's like, look, Christianity, that's, that's not what it is. There's a, there's a good foundation here. There's a great foundation. You don't have to know everything. But the journey starts on this one thing, the validity and the reliability of who Jesus is. And if you rest yourself on that and on the two feet of ice then your faith is going to continue to flourish and grow as you take those steps and you journey in what it is to know God and have joy in Him every single day of your life. I want to pray. And then after I pray, we're going to sing again. And as we sing this last song, let this be uh, the, a moment for you. If you're in uh, your living room or if you're at your home there with, with your family, let this be a moment for you where you can uh, you know, take some time to take communion, perhaps. Take the, 
If you have some, some bread and some wine, some bread and, and some juice, you can take it and remember the, the body and the blood of Christ, that physical act that now represents the forgiveness that you, that you experience today. And, and as and Jesus said, just always as you take this bread and this, this cup, remember that. Remember it. John wants us to, look, that's the whole purpose of John's writing, that we would never forget, that we would never forget this very real and tangible foundation that Christianity has. So we're going to sing this song that actually represents uh, it actually represents the, uh, the opportunity that we have given to us by this great God to approach Him through Jesus.